Hello everyone and I hope you've had a lovely half term week. The traffic has been lighter, whether not so wonderful, but nonetheless I hope you've had a lot of fun through Halloween festivities. Some of the houses are still uh, decorated, scaring all sorts of dogs and animals in their wake, but um, but at least it's been, it's been nice, a nice week to be in Luxembourg. I have a very full studio today. As always, my colleague Sasha Kyo. I've got Christina Mikulova, who is the representative of the European Investment Bank to Lebanon, André Nevis, known as André Seven, from Majestic, and Jay, who is one of his upcoming stars. We'll talk to them. And we have Monique Kirsch, who is going to talk to us about the Science Festival. So welcome to all of my guests. Great to have you all here at RTL in Kirschberg, Luxembourg. And thank you for everybody who's listening from abroad and who writes in and tells us, uh, well, they give us comments. And um, and Brad, thank you for telling us about enjoying uh, Reverend David Usher's talk and mentioning that your father was also a jackaroo, a word that I truly love now. Sasha, great to be yes, I'd never heard the word jackaroo. I thought it was rather a good, good yeah, word. Yeah, it's a great term. I went off to be a jackaroo. Sounds Isn't that a exciting. wonderful career yeah. choice? Yes. <laughs> so, it's nice to be here this week. A little bit calm. Yes, it's, it's well, the, certainly the car park is a bit calmer, but the news has not been so calm, actually. There yeah. is a lot of news around this week. Yeah. Um, not so much uh, political news from Luxembourg, um, but uh, international news, yes, it's yes. pretty heavy this week. Yeah, and we're going to start with perhaps the story of the moment. It's slightly moved on to Ukraine. In fact, Christine, you were here to talk about Ukraine and this time, goodness me, I only see you during a war. This is, uh, we should meet in other circumstances. But Sasha, let's talk about Gaza. Yes, I mean, obviously, all eyes are on on Gaza um, at the moment. Um, I mean, have been for a while. But, uh, you know, the, the the story has moved on really onto the humanitarian situation in Gaza, which is which is absolutely appalling. Uh, you know, the UN rapporteurs uh, yesterday um, questioned the fact that there is there are no humanitarian pauses, as the Americans call it, in the fighting. Um, you know, a lot of people are calling for a ceasefire, which seems not to be possible. Um, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is in Israel today to, I think, well, what the media says is to persuade the Israeli government to allow these pauses in the fighting. Meanwhile, the border crossing to Egypt has opened for the last few days and a few people have been allowed out, some wounded uh, Palestinians as well as people of, with who have a, uh, another passport. Mm. So foreign nationals have been allowed out, but it's, you know, it's very few mm. um, considering there are over two million people there and, you know, the, the death toll is just rising and rising and the the world is horrified by what we see, which we know is not the full picture. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's a heavy story. Incredibly hard for journalists to be there as well. And talking of journalists, we have Hamza from Enex, who gave uh, an interview with our colleague Sam this week, which we'll link to. And yeah, equally, we, were, we had somebody from Tel Aviv. Too. Yes, no, we were really lucky to speak to Hamza because, um, you know, he, he is a Gazan and um, who has covered this story for years. I mean, as a 17-year-old, he first went uh, to report as a cameraman and, you know, he was shot in 2006. And so he, you know, for him, it's it's personally very affecting. And he also has a very, um, you know, professional attitude to what what's going on. Um, and c- c- he sort of recalled his experiences from 2006 and compared it to the situation now. So that was very, very moving. Mm-hmm. I would uh, urge people to listen to it. And yes, equally, we, we, we spoke to someone living in Tel Aviv and, you know, the, the, the fear and the existential fear of people living there and also what the Israeli media is reporting is, is not always in, in line with what we're seeing here, I have to mm-hmm. say. That, that's something we know happens in, um, well, every war. Let's park that because I know we'll pick up on that story with Christina. We also have to mention there's been a very, very important AI summit in Bletchley, very famous Bletchley Park in the UK. Yes, so it was the first ever summit um, on artificial intelligence and specifically on safety and artificial intelligence. And, uh, you know, they, they saw, uh, 28 countries signed this Bletchley Declaration, which is quite extraordinary when you think the the diversity of the countries that, that agreed to cooperate on AI safety. So that you can see the, the concern there is in the world. So, and these, these countries also include play, uh, countries like China. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I did laugh today that what completely overtook the the. Bletchley Declaration was a conversation between Elon Musk and the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, where he spoke about humanoid robots who are going to, you know, take over the world, take over the world and get us back. And also the fact that we will no longer have jobs and we'll have to get used to a universal high income, he called it. Mm. Um, so in the age of abundance, there won't be jobs for any of us. Mm. So that's oh. the big news of today. <laughs> According to him. According to Mr. Musk. Yes. But that has uh, ignited people's imaginations. Yeah. I suppose when we put uh, mention his name, another story that's been uh, rattling around the press, especially the US press for a while, this week, uh, of course, because it just came to a head, is Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, yes, and what a story. I loved the judge summing up. Um, so Sam Bankman-Fried was the head of this FTX uh, exchange which so he was a sort of crypto. golden boy of cryptocurrency mm. wasn't he um and yet it seems to have all been smoke and mirrors and uh, and very corrupt and he you know he has now been found guilty for money laundering and fraud mm. and uh, the the judge summed up said uh, you know i'm taking this not verbatim that uh, cryptocurrency might be new but this kind of corruption is not new. <laughs> so, <yeah>. Great line. <laughs> it's so good. It's I'm, as old as the age. Yes. So, yeah. um, yes, quite interesting. And uh, what what a development for cryptocurrency? Because I assume that it's really affected people's confidence in in that. Yes, I remember. And there's been a few peaks and troughs. And I remember when people were riding the peak. I know some people have done very well out of the peak. Uh, lucky them. And I, and I put a little bit in. I dabbled a little bit, but um, I dare not look. <laughs> I dare <laughs> yes. not look. It, it wasn't know. FTX, was it? Uh, no, no, it wasn't FTX. No, no, it was other things. <laughs> <laughs> so let, we have a couple more stories. Um, I suppose that there uh, one very sad story is the the homeless refugees in Luxembourg. Yes, well, this is also very uh, a, a new issue, I think, in Luxembourg, is that the Luxembourgish government has decided not to prioritise young men travelling alone who have already applied for asylum in another country. So they've decided to prioritise women, children and vulnerable people for accommodation. And what has happened or what the result of this is that a, a sort of impromptu little camp has appeared under the Pont Adolphe mm. of um, some tents and people living, you know, w without shelter, which is very shocking for mm -hmm. Luxembourg. I, I, you know, you've, you're, you've seen it in other countries and it has also coincided with temperatures dropping here. So there's been huge criticism of the government and uh, the foreign minister, Jean Asselborn, has sort of said, you know, we, we have to put uh, measures in place to prioritise because we don't have enough accommodation for everyone who who wants to come here. Um, but the Refugee Council has said it's you know it's totally unacceptable that a country like Luxembourg has people sleeping on the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then finally we're going to end with a music story. We have to end with a music story because we have Jay and Andre in the studio. Well, I love this story. I mean, maybe it shows my age, but the Beatles have really, well, the Beatles haven't released, but a new Beatles song was released yesterday called Now and Then. And it was a song, song that was originally uh, penned and uh, sung by John Lennon and obviously kind of was pushed to the side. Then many years later, George Harrison worked on it. And uh, again, it wasn't published. And now Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney, with the help of some AI, have managed to extract John Lennon's voice and release this this single. So and it has a real sound of them. It, have, you've heard it. It I does, have, doesn't it? Yeah. It feels like a song you've you know it, you know it's the Beatles when you hear yes. it yes yeah it yes. really has that That I mean it's incredible maybe it's not incredible but when a band really has uh, a sound flavour that you know you kind of just hear a couple of bars and you know ah oh, that's the Beatles that's the Beatles yeah and you know everyone was saying oh is it going to be any good and you said well they don't have to issue new songs at all so you know this must be really good to make it worth their while because their reputation is on the line for, for something like this yeah I didn't think so, of it that way um, and, and also true. they're They've re they're releasing a music video which shows some unseen footage of the Beatles. Uh -huh. um, and so I think this, it generates a sort of excitement around it. It does. Sasha, thank you so much. I know you're going to stay with us or if you can't stay with us, I know you're very, very busy this morning. Thank you, as always, for being with us in the studio. My pleasure. Lovely to be here. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. 
Now introducing Christina Mikulova. I'm not pronouncing it as I should, but I'm trying. It's been a year. Last time you were in the studio to talk about uh, Ukraine and this time something different, but still not pleasant. A little bit for our listeners who may not know you and our viewers, of course, on RTL Play. You're originally from Slovakia. You arrived in Luxembourg just five years ago to work for the European institutions. You have a PhD in political and social sciences from Oxford University and have travelled the world on assignment with your country's government and international organisations such as the World Bank. You're currently the representative of the European Investment Bank, the EIB, to Lebanon, which has been battered by crisis after crisis of unprecedented proportions and the currency has lost 90% of its value in recent years. And we also know, of course, Lebanon is now also in the public eye because of its potential involvement in the Israel-Hamas war. So we will talk about that. That aside, you still believe that uh, as a true European, we all stand united for our respect with humanity and its rights. Christina, thank you for being back with us. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. And uh, indeed, another critical juncture, right? Yes, yeah. You, you seem to be aligned with critical junctures. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I, not I, by choice, I no. swear to you. <laughs> well, I, I uh, firstly just want to ask you to explain to our listeners, what does the representative of the EIB to Lebanon do? What does it mean? So you're the sole representative uh, of a big institution such as the European Investment Bank, which is the financing arm of the European Union in Europe and abroad in this country. And this country is a part of our neighborhood, uh, what we call the southern neighborhood of the EU. And having a stable, prosperous neighborhood is obviously essential, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so this is what I do there. I represent the bank. Uh, I am the interlocutor between the bank and uh, the government, private sector representative, civil society, etc. I supervise the portfolio that we have there, or correction, had there before the crisis. And I report back on uh, any critical events that happen. And this has obviously been a very busy time uh, for Lebanon in the past four years, uh, not entirely uh, in the best sense of the word. No, absolutely. <clears throat> And we have a great audience, a very informed audience. But for those who don't live and breathe Middle Eastern issues. I'd love you to give us some context to why Lebanon is so strategically important when it comes to Israel and Palestine. So Lebanon in many ways is uh, a battleground of the Middle East because sort of you see it as a country that has sort of a legacy of French rule, uh, that has uh, a legacy of Iran's involvement in uh, domestic affairs. Sort of many of these countries having a strategic interest in Lebanon, right? And uh, very often this is not perceived as a country that makes its own decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So now when you look at a conflict like the one uh, that we're seeing uh, sort of playing out in, in the Gaza Strip, in the most heartbreaking of ways, sort of uh, the eyes are on Lebanon because sort of by proxy as part of the axis of resistance or what is called as the axis of resistance and that is Iran, Hamas and Hezbollah. Hezbollah being the political party and a resistance movement that is uh, playing a major role in Lebanese politics and sort of in how the country conducts itself in international affairs uh, may or may not uh, choose to get involved in this conflict. And mm -hmm. this, if it were to happen, would have devastating consequences for the country itself and potentially for the region. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, it, its unsettled nature, the fact that it's not really in charge of itself as a country. It hasn't had a president since 2019. It's running on a caretaker government, which has huge social and economic uh, issues. About two million refugees from Syria and Apparently, they've said they don't want to get dragged into this. And still, Prime Minister Najib Makati has said they may have no choice. And you have heard Najib Mikati sort of saying that this is out of his hands. And this tells you a lot about who really uh, makes Ooh. the decisions in the country, right? And sort of this, uh, on this particular day, we're waiting in anticipation for three o'clock because this is when Hassan Nasrallah, who is uh, the head of the Hezbollah movement, is going to speak for the first time uh, since the crisis broke out. And we should say that we're recording this on Friday. It will go out from Saturday. So by the time it goes out, we will he will have spoken, but we don't know what he's going to say right now. We We don't know what he's going to say, and I think that uh, the world is watching. Um, we've seen a few teasers, um, mm -hmm. so it's uh, almost been compared to a new Netflix uh, documentary uh, or series sort of uh, going to be released, right? Uh, so he's uh, had these clips uh, sort of showing his silhouette, sort of gazing, uh, gazing up, uh, 
presumably uh, thinking very important thoughts. So let's hear uh, what he actually has to say this afternoon. Yeah, you alluded to briefly Iran's influence here. Um, again, you know, we have a, a very learned audience, but not everybody will understand Iran's arm in Lebanon and with Hezbollah. Indeed, and uh, I think it is a very complex issue, and myself included, I learned a lot uh, since I took this position in Lebanon about a year ago. Um, uh, Hezbollah is, uh, like I said, part of this axis of resistance, right? Uh, part of Iran's axis in the region. And through these proxies, such as Hezbollah and Hamas, Iran exercises influence uh, and, on the affairs in the region. And Hezbollah is completely paid through it is supplied by Iran. It is advised by Iran. It's not entirely dependent, though. I mean, we saw this in 2006. A the little year, break. Exactly. Mm. We uh, saw the last conflict between uh, Hezbollah and uh, Israel, yeah. Yeah. right? So there was a brief war. Well, for some brief, for some, you know, even if it, in its brevity, it can have very, very serious consequences. So it was about a month uh, that they fought. And, uh, you know, the uh, understanding among the observers very well versed in the affairs of the region is that Hezbollah went into this independently. It chose to start the conflict. And then, of course, its uh, patron, uh, if we can call Iran that, uh, uh, decided to step in verbally, morally, uh, support, uh, advise on the strategy, supply, etc. After after, after after the yeah. conflict broke out. So you see that sort of there is a degree of independence. Mm. Hezbollah is easily the most powerful at this point in history of Iran's proxies in the region. Mm. So really, uh, whether or not it joins this conflict, uh, it is to a certain extent up to Iran, but uh, it has a degree of independence. So we don't know what will happen yet. And Hasran Nasrallah has actually said on record repeatedly that he acknowledges it's Ayatollah Ali Khamenei who decides on war and peace. Indeed, he has said this repeatedly. And uh, I think this is also a way of uh, subtracting a bit of that independence that we know that they have uh, mm -hmm. as sort of one of the most powerful allies or part of uh, parts of this axis of resistance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so due to this hierarchy of religious authority, it indeed is supposed to be the Ayatollah who decides on war and peace. But like I just said, sort of in 2006, it wasn't quite like that. Yeah. So again, a degree of unpredictability. Absolutely. And we also think that Hezbollah can bypass Israel's what we call the Iron Dome indeed. of defense because they have so much weaponry at their disposal. They do, they do, uh, certainly. And we have seen skirmishes at the border that have gradually uh, sort of escalated, but still respect what we call the rules of engagement, right? So it isn't uncommon for Lebanon to have this exchange of fire of rockets uh, on the southern border, uh, which is where the Hezbollah stronghold is, which is where the blue line is, the disputed border between the two countries, uh, where you have the UN peacekeepers who can keep peace, they cannot actually intervene or sort of do anything if the conflict were to escalate. Uh, so we have seen this sort of gradually grow in intensity. But at the same time, it's not hitting that tipping point at which you would be able to say, well, now this has completely changed the rules of the game. So I think that both sides are aware of what's at stake, uh, which is also why we're waiting with such excitement for this afternoon uh, to sort of see if the rules of the game will be adjusted or not, right? Mm. Uh, but sort of the international community in Lebanon uh, has been very concerned. They've been evacuating staff, uh, myself included. And this also has to do with the complex uh, logistics of evacuation from Lebanon. Because sort of, if you look at Israel, for example, most diplomatic missions are still there, right? Families have left, maybe non-essential staff has left. But you have multiple routes that allow you to leave Israel if something uh, were to happen, if a conflict uh, were to affect these people. In Lebanon, you have one airport one commercial airport, if this were to be disabled, you only have sea routes to get out of the country yeah, by boats you to can't Cyprus. actually get out through roads in Syria. You cannot, exactly. Syria's airports have been bombed. I yes. know there's an American airport as well in Lebanon, but that's not really available to everybody. It's not shared, exactly. Yeah, so, so you, you've got one current functioning airport, and if that was to go down, that would be disastrous. So actually, let's keep on the topic of logistics, because I think you've just come off a call about getting medicine into Lebanon. So I, I know you don't you can't go into the details of uh, private calls, but logistics is an incredibly important part because not, not only just getting people out of Lebanon, but getting things into Lebanon and therefore into Palestine and Israel. 
And this is incredibly important for Lebanon because it's such an import-dependent economy, almost completely dependent for fuel, for food, for medication, right? So again, if this were to be affected, the country has supplies of about three months uh, of food and basic necessities for fuel, uh, 12 days, right? So if uh, the supplies stop coming in, you would potentially have a blackout in the country, right? And this is something that had happened uh, already uh, in the crisis that Lebanon has been suffering through for the past few years. So we saw sort of these images of black Beirut, right? Which was something very uncommon. Beirut is a city that never sleeps very much like New York, right? Uh, it used to be uh, one of the biggest uh, sort of party town, right? Uh, party towns in the region, sort of with this reputation of sort of always being vivacious, no matter what was happening. You see that even now, to be honest, sort of, I think that, uh, you know, the Lebanese are one of the most resilient people that I've ever met in my life, even as they detest the term. Right. Because sort of, you know, being resilient also means that you have to suffer through a lot. And for many Lebanese, this has been an incredibly tough period. And what is or is not to come would just be, I think, devastating. Right. Yeah. They've had to be resilient, but with no choice. Exactly. Yeah. You don't choose that. So, you know, how do you cope with that amount of hardship and of suffering and sort of uh, for this uh, nation? Um, one of the one of the routes that they have taken is this escapism, right? I mean, there's still a lot of creativity there. There's music, uh, sort of. There's culture. There's art. It's actually incredible to see sort of uh, what uh, what response exactly what people come up with under these circumstances. Yeah. So you've told us a little bit about the food, the food and fuel there. And again, the mm. fuel links to the airport. So it's really a very urgent situation. And the problem with any war is that it's not just in the countries that are at war, but mm. it just feeds out across the whole area. And that's, you know, why we're talking about this. Um, now, what do you think Israel's signs are to Lebanon? It sent several strong signals that it is not interested in opening a second front. But what do you feel, given that you've been on the ground? I think it is not interested. Uh, I think it has its handful uh, rights in, in Gaza. I think neither side effectively is interested in escalating this conflict. But uh, as we have seen, um, we like to think that sort of human will and choice sort of is what determines events, but it's very often also circumstances, right? Uh, so there's a massive room uh, for error, for unpredictability. So the fact that both sides have said, uh, we don't want this conflict to escalate, we don't want a second front uh, in uh, in the south of Lebanon, uh, in the north of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu was actually visiting uh, the northern command and the troops there uh, just last week, uh, sort of saying very, very clearly, beware uh, if you were to enter this conflict, and this is to Hezbollah, obviously, sort of this would bring Lebanon back to the Stone Age in terms of the response that we would uh, sort of inflict upon the country, right? And sort of uh, with Hezbollah, it has said, for example, that one of its red lines is uh, the Israelis entering Gaza uh, uh, in a ground invasion. This has happened. Uh, so far, we have not seen a major response uh, from Hezbollah. But this gives you a sense of yeah. We're not really ready to do this on either side, right? Mm -hmm. But like I said, very often, so we are powerless in the face of events, uh, in the face of uh, mistakes, in the face of uh, human error. So let's see. And tragedy. I mean, again, I just need to reiterate the fact that it's not just Lebanese people, but there's an enormous number, about two million Syrian refugees mm -hmm. in Lebanon at the moment. So it, the whole area is really, it's really on edge, on edge and in enormous way. But I want to bring it back to finance, because of course, you're with the EIB. And um, the poor Lebanese people, their currency is worth nothing anymore. So when you've got your EIB hat on, what do you think? Where do you begin? It's um, really difficult to say where to begin, right? I mean, the currency has lost almost all of its value. So if you're paid in local currency, let's say you had a salary of uh, $600 before the crisis, and now you have 60, right? Why would you go to work? So very often you can just walk into a ministry, you can walk into the minister's office, take some documents and leave because there's no one around. I mean, this is uh, one of the most powerful, I think, 
impressions that I've gotten, right? Like, uh, what does a complete collapse of public sector look like? And they're doing their best, right? I mean, the donors have stepped in, the financiers have stepped in, we're financing things such as uh, teacher salaries, right? Or a supply of medication, um, hospitals, obviously, sort of uh, schools and uh, sort of the energy bills that they cannot afford to pay. So we've really sort of been uh, extending a lifeline to this country. And uh, I really sort of want to give a big shout out to all of my colleagues who have been sort of uh, incredibly active from UN agencies uh, from uh, the EU embassy, right, as one of the biggest donors in Lebanon, um, the US, uh, France, uh, you name it, right? Uh, everyone's been stepping in in their own way. I mean, for example, the Americans are also uh, co-financing the salaries of the Lebanese army so that, you know, we have some semblance of peace, even as the situation is incredibly tense. So again, sort of, it is, uh, to me, a heartbreaking, yet incredibly instructive example of how countries, even in the direst of circumstances, somehow survive. And, uh, you know, uh, lately we've been observing um, an upturn. So the economy is almost completely dollarized. You still see sort of this incredible loyalty of Lebanese expats. They all come for a vacation, whether it is, you know, in the summer uh, for the beach or it is in the winter for the skiing. Sort of they bring billions of dollars into the country. And as it's all cash, because the banking sector has collapsed, when you take a plane, you kind of play this little game uh, with yourself. How many millions do you think are on the plane that you're on? Just getting into the country, because this is the only way that money gets into the country, right? But that's also a great risk of uh, being intercepted then and uh, attacks happening just for money. Yes, uh, I think it is tolerated. Uh, because, like I said, uh, this is one of the lifelines uh, that the country has, the diaspora remittances, sort of the spending that the diaspora uh, brings uh, every season. This has been one of the arguments that uh, caretaker Prime Minister Najib Mikhati uh, has used, uh, you know, uh, when he said that the country doesn't need an IMF program. Why would we need $3 billion from the IMF over the course of, of several years when we have the same amount coming in every season? Or perhaps you could have both. Perhaps you could have both. This is very much what we would like to see. I mean, the international community has been tireless in its advocacy over the past few years for Lebanon to undertake the structural reforms that are needed for the country to, in fact, get this support from the IMF. Because this is not just about the money, and this is what we keep repeating to them. It is a stamp of credibility, of trust, and this would enable financiers such as the EIB uh, to come back at scale to really help rebuild the country. But without that credibility, without that enabling environment, uh, we cannot just let this happen. Currently, if you lend to Lebanon, whether it is the government or it's a, it's a company in the private sector, you could be repaid in the worthless local currency, for example, right? I mean, there's absolutely no trust that, that you can have at the moment mm -hmm. that if you extend help, it's actually sort of, you know, the obligations that come with that help are going to be honored. It's more like charity. Now, you've spoken about your role as a representative of the EIB. I would love your impressions as a human, very, very connected with wanting the best for the world and deeply connected to what value the EU can bring to other places. I think that uh, the EU in many ways has been sort of this beacon of uh, values, right? Uh, sort of this universal attracting uh, power that it has, right? I mean, if you speak to a Syrian refugee, if you speak to a Lebanese uh, that is thinking, well, where, where uh, are my kids going to get a better life? Most people want to go to Europe, right? I mean, there's always the US, but uh, sort of Europe has this soft power, as it used to be called, right? Um, and I think that sort of this reform advocacy sort of also embodies uh, the role that we try to play in our neighborhood, right? And like I said, for the EU, it's it's extremely important that we have a stable, that we have a prosperous neighborhood, right? Uh, that we have a mutually enriching relationship. It's never a one-way street, right? I mean, Lebanon has so much to offer. But at the same time, one of the things that we can bring are these standards. So that's you with your European hat on, but yes. I want to get down to you as a human being. Give us some of your impressions. It's a, it's a country that's been very, very close to me for many years. I first visited it uh, in 2009 and I've been coming back ever since. And there is something magnetic and magical about this country. It really draws you in, whether it's uh, the good or, or the bad, right? It's a sort of just one package it has. 
the mountains, you can go skiing and then take a dip in the sea, right? Uh, it has wonderful musicians, wonderful artists, wonderful writers. Uh, it just has this very, very unique place, I think, in the region, sort of with this influence of European culture, with the power of, di of the diaspora, sort of, that is uh, basically all around the world. Mm -hmm. There's more Lebanese outside of Lebanon. And, you know, this brings me to that... Uh, to that heartbreaking point. There's a reason why there's more Lebanese outside of Lebanon yeah. than in Lebanon. And I met them in Abu Dhabi when I lived there. And there you go. The yeah. saddest thing was uh, the pregnant women would fly mm. to, at one point, Ireland until Ireland changed its rules mm. and then to Canada to have their children so that they could get a Canadian passport because they realise... In fact, I, I met both Palestinian and Lebanese women mm -hmm. who flew just to have their babies in Canada. This brings me to perhaps something more personal that I can share. And that is, you know, I, I do have obviously Lebanese friends and uh, one dear friend of mine sort of recently uh, with uh, with her partner at the time, she's a Maronite Christian and he's a Shia. Uh, they were expecting a baby. And uh, again, in, in a heartbreaking moment, she decided that she was not confident that she can have that baby because one of the bizarre, perhaps for some, uh, things about Lebanon is that community law supersedes national law it supersedes everything right so if you were to have a conflict with the father of your child and they just decided to take that child away from you they can and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it right so these are one of the kind of aha moments that you have when you realize okay it's not just great food it's not just sort of a fascinating case study I mean, this is this is a society that sort of is so deeply segmented and segregated in a way and sort of marred by distrust of each other that sort of in, even on a very basic human level, mm -hmm. I mean, things like this can happen, right? Can you imagine that choice what, what, sort of that you're faced with as a woman? Make? Did she have the baby? She did not. Okay. Thank you for sharing that story. That's an incredibly difficult choice she had to make. And it really Absolutely. comes down to the human level of what's happening there on so many different levels in Lebanon. Christina, as always, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Thank you. After this break, I'll talk to André and Jay. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. Well, moving into the realm of music, uh, moving into the realm of what's available here in Luxembourg. Uh, a little bit about André. Uh, André Seven, this is the alias, a music producer from Esch sur Alzette, signed to Sony Music Publishing Group, the co-founder and owner of Majestic. You specialise in producing and selling beats online and you have uh, a very significant market in the music industry. Collaborators include Lil Dirk, Anneli Choppa, Apache, Saido, Samra, and you've created beats that have earned a place on the German charts. You also have the largest YouTube channel in Luxembourg with a quarter of a million subscribers, uh, 65 million views, and hold a gold plaque in the US for your contribution to the album Cottonwood by Enali Chopper. Uh, you launched your company Majestic in 2018, specialising in hip-hop, R&B, pop beats, and they're used by Sony Entertainment, Boffling, Innovos, and many others. And now you focus more on building up upcoming artists such as Jay, who is opposite me. Jay is uh, otherwise known as Jason Montero. Uh, you are working in the R&B music industry from Ettelbrook originally. And your inspirations include Usher, Chris Brown, etc. And uh, we're going to talk about this uh, Brazilian roots that you have. So you mix Afro and Latino beats into your R&B songs. So André, I want to start with you first of all. I saw a lovely picture of you and your co-founder at school, aged about 15. Now, if I was to describe this picture, I, I think I would use the words teenagedom. You know, you were, you were asleep, basically. I was, yes. <laughs> and yet, and yet, you know, 15 years on, maybe a bit more, you're doing amazing things. Tell us about this journey with that teenage friend of yours. Thank you, Lisa, for having me here today. Uh, I knew you would start with this. I, I, I love I, that I, photo. I, I love it. I could feel it that <laughs> you would bring this up. Um, it's but the best photo ever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, I met my friend David in high school and uh, we were 15 years old. We were not like the most motivated students, I guess. And, uh, you know, you, we used to listen to a lot of hip hop music. Um, uh, to put it in perspective, it was like the 2000s. So, uh, 
artists like Eminem, 50 Cent, Rihanna were upcoming artists. And uh, we were lucky actually to, you know, live in that era, uh, growing up with these artists and it influenced us uh, so much, you know, to, to, to make music as well. So we started out as artists. Um, and yeah, funny, funny fact is that we never released our songs and we shifted to music production because, uh, yeah. But you spent <laughs> hours and hours. I mean, this became a passion for you both. I mean, it's also wonderful that you've retained your friendship and built a business together because a lot of people, well, a lot of marriages don't last that long. So <laughs> this is very, very good. But you, you really spent your weekends, even when you had different jobs, you spent your weekends doing this and you would watch and you would learn and you would listen to something and think, how did they do that? I mean, we must actually say for our audience, explain what is a beat? Yeah, uh, as beat producer, you create the music, um, you know, the instrumental part of a song, uh, which is ready then to, you know, put vocals to it. And uh, it can also be a soundtrack for uh, uh, an advertising, um, an advertising or just a soundtrack to listen to. It, it, a beat is really only the music with the drums. Actually. Well, you say only. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking it's pretty much everything <laughs> apart from the vocals. Yes. Yeah, you could say it like that too. Yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's it's a long journey, and uh, it's it's has been fun. It's still fun, and uh, we are always were passionate about uh, doing this. And now we are lucky to you know to to be able to have this company and uh, to provide music for artists around the world. And now, uh, like you said, I, I, I really want to, you know, try to give my knowledge, pass this on to, to newer artists and newer music producers yeah. out here. Yeah. <laughs> and you have met some great people. Again, I've seen the photos, I've heard some of the stories um, and you work very, very hard. So I'd like you to talk to us about life in the studio when you're working with one of these international artists. Mm -hmm. I can think of a particular one in the US. You can talk about them if you want. You know, you're, you're there. Or, or in Germany, again, you've got great stories. In the studio, working hard. Talk to us about that life, because that's a life not a lot of people would know about. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, you when a song drops, you only listen to the finished product. It's maybe three minutes long. And uh, people. it's normal for people don't realizing how much work that is actually behind and how much competition there is to actually, uh, you know, being able to release a song. It, it's It's... Every song has its own story, so it's pretty much cliche, but it's true. Working in a studio with artists is really... It, it depends on who the artist is, but it's really crazy in the sense of that they ha have this crazy lifestyle, that they, um, you know, come, out, come to the studio with all their friends, so they basically are enjoying them, themselves in the studio and try to create and try to tell um, in a song what happened to them, you know, and... Especially for rappers, I think it's, um, you know, also very common, not uncommon that they, you know, uh, consume alcohol or drugs. So being in a studio as a music producer, especially if you don't do these things, is <laughs> quite crazy um, because you really have to deal with all that stress that they put on you in order, you know, to, to, to get the song done, to record them, um, you know, without <laughs> losing um, your temper because it's it's super loud in the studio and there's so much going on. The friends are throwing stuff, they're playing basketball and, you know, you really have to stay focused and uh, sometimes you have to enjoy with them. So during the studio, they do breaks and then you play some FIFA and then you go smoke some shisha and stuff. It's, it's, it's quite a crazy lifestyle and... I think I enjoyed it a lot when I was younger, <laughs> but now... now um, you're a responsible father. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I try to, uh, you know, leverage my position to stay away a little bit from these crazy studio sessions that go until six in the morning. I, I don't do this anymore oh <laughs> or not so much. It's <laughs> painful to me. Um, yeah. yeah, and I would like you also to, to go back because what really put you on the map was um, other people were finding and using your beats without mm -hmm. giving you anything back yeah. and you found out about this but rather than you know take them to task and say hey pay us for using our beats you decided to collaborate yeah uh, because collaboration is key in the music industry and universally um, communication is the most important thing when it comes up for people to you know deal with each other in a positive way so I I really always tried to um, make the situations uh, a benefit for me. And uh, 
I had a, like you said, I had a lot of people stealing my music at the beginning when I was upcoming, and um, instead of you know shutting the videos down in which they use my content. I would reach out to them and say, "Hey, uh, guys, now yeah. uh, you have stole my music." Um, and instead of you know be emotional about it, I put my business hat on, and and I knew from the beginning that I wanted to become a full time music producer. And in order to do so, you have to make choices, collaborate a lot, and make yourself known out there. And reaching out to these people and finding agreements, uh, they showcasing my channel and showcasing me, giving me credit, was a lot better than just get $50 for them using my music, you know. And you've explained something, well, two things there. First of all, you've explained your mental rationality, the mm. fact that you can stay calm, whether you're in a studio full of people taking drugs or whatever, yeah. and then playing the odd FIFA game, or also, you know, when someone's stealing your music, rather than going ballistic, you can say, hey, okay, let's collaborate here. Yeah. Let's do a win-win situation. Yeah. This talks about how you've got beyond the borders of Luxembourg. You are an internationally known producer. Yeah. How can somebody follow that path? Uh, it's it's quite difficult to um, put it down to like two, three keywords, I guess. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, the most important thing is, I guess, is your mindset. And uh, you have to really uh, be focused on what you really want and then uh, make decisions according to your goals. Um, be really emotionally detached from the situations you might go through because um, it's a lot of, can be a lot of frustrations, a lot of, um, you know, uh, defeats, let let me put it like that. Uh, success comes when you really push through all these years because um, you, you, you mentioned some achievements I have. There's a lot of other producers that have achieved more in less time. So for me, it's 15 years now in the making and um, 80%, let's say, or even 90%, were not successful moments. So um, if somebody wants to embark on such a kind of journey, then they have to be, uh, you know, resilient and uh, motivated. And it has to be a passion because if you are not doing it for fun, Mm. you are not going to uh, make it a very long time. I think Steve Jobs once said something, once said said something like this, rest in peace to him. Uh, He said that, if you don't do something really for fun that you don't really like, you are not going to do it anyway much longer because it's most of the time it's suffering, really. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to do uh, to become successful. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, another thing I love is how you name your tracks and you've got a great, you know, I remember we were talking about this before. Uh, everybody loves a melancholy track. Yeah. So tell us true. about some of the names that you come up with for your beats. Oh, uh like somebody said to me once, I listened to your channel and you shouldn't uh, name yourself Majestic. You should, na- you should name yourself Suicide Beats. <laughs> it was really, and it made me think, it made me, it, made me, it made me think that I really come up with crazy names that, but yeah, I give you uh, like, like two or three examples. Uh, let's say one last time, um, suffering, uh, depression, and then I use sad emotional music to write about and stuff. And, and these uh, are very well received. Yes, these are very well received because mostly I think that humans, um, you know... Suffer. Suffer a lot, yes. Um, and music is, is, in my opinion, a good way, you know, to, to address the feelings that we all have. And for to give you a, a concrete example when i see the comments below my videos i mean everybody can watch those a lot of artists i guess would write their lyrics their real life situations in there in the comments and sometimes it was really heartbreaking that we were reaching out actually to these people and say hey man um it, it, it's like crazy what's going on in your life and if you need to talk about that uh we can do that and um you know this has been more fulfilling for me uh, come up with tracks that allow people to express themselves and people actually thanking us for uploading that kind of music was also a great aspect on the why I kept going for, for so long because at, at some point you f- feel like you have some kind of responsibility to you know provide music that helps people. That's and, incredible. That's yeah. uh, that's a lovely story. I didn't know about that. But actually yeah. it brings me back to what Christina was saying that, you know, despite everything that's happening in Beirut, it's still... A place which is vibrant with creativity because it's so healing and it's a way it is. people can express themselves. 
Well, I have to move to Jay. Now, Jay, mm-hmm. first of all, it's not JJ. No, no. So why why do you spell it like JJ? Yeah. First, I want to say I'm grateful to be here today. And as you said, um, you told like, yeah, we have Andre and JJ today. And I told you, no, it's Jay. Yeah. Why? It's a funny story. It's a simple story. I was looking for a name, an artist name. And yeah, on Spotify, uh, you have to write down your name and then they tell you if it's available or not. So I put in J and it wasn't uh, available. So I had to write it with two J's. And there we go. So, so yeah. <laughs> you have a lifetime of saying to people, it's not JJ, it's yeah. J. <laughs> so when did you get into music? Like it started one year ago. Like Andre said, I'm like uh, the vocal part of the beat. And I started one year ago. I started when uh, with COVID, I would say, because I was always a dancer. So I was into music, but not into singing. And yeah, COVID came and I couldn't dance anymore, couldn't go to places to teach uh, people to dance. So I was at home and thinking about, okay, I want to be creative. So I started writing down my feelings and my thoughts and that's when i met andre and he helped me like yeah putting this into art into voice and it since then i'm enjoying doing music and like i cannot imagine a future without music mm-hmm. in my life mm-hmm. i can see the smile of your producer he's very <laughs> proud of his upcoming yeah. artist so i want you to talk to us about where you get the ideas i mean actually andre you spoke very beautifully about Um, poignantly about people who write their stories do you bring a lot of your own story to your music yeah uh, like all my songs are based on true stories it could be uh, just a part of the song or maybe the whole song but like I think it's very easy to write about things that you had in your life that you passed through and like people can connect like easily to this so i'm usually writing about or it's maybe partying with friends or it's a heartbreak story something like this so yeah it's always based on true stories and talk to us uh, about the creative process because Mm -hmm. it it's not a nine to five job You know, creativity is something that uh, I remember a writer once saying, you can be walking along and you catch it in the breeze. And if you don't catch that feather of an idea, it floats away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like creativity, you cannot choose when you want to be creative. That's the problem. So maybe you are like uh, at home or you're under the shower (laughs) and like you have an idea at, at that moment and this happened really to me what do you do jump out so, of the shower yeah i was i was in the shower i was like because i'm always singing in the, in the shower oh. so oh, i have neighbors. like an idea and i was like no this is a great idea so i go out go to my phone and record it so i don't forget it and go back to the shower to to finish yeah and you should uh, make a video of this yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so yeah maybe um also i have to say it's uh, difficult also when you have time uh, in your day and you are like, okay, now I'm at home, I have time, I want to be creative, but it's not how it works. So at that moment, I had like times, I was sitting there for five hours uh, in my room and there was nothing on paper. So yeah, it comes and goes and you have to decide like, Sometimes my friends told me, yeah, let's go out to a party. I was like, no, no, I'm creative right now. So I would stay at home and write. Yeah. So you have to make choices. And so then you do your writing and you have uh, a melody in your mind. Yeah. And then you bring that writing and the melody to André. Yes, and right. does he find the beats to fit that? Or how does that collaboration? Yeah, like, as I told, my music is R&B, but it's like a mixture. So I come to the studio and, yeah, as always, I get on my nurse, I get on nurse from Andre to get to the studio often. So um, we go to the studio and I just tell him how I feel. And often he knows what I mean and he just catches that, that feeling and 
put it into music. Ah, so, so that's a, that's a skill we didn't write into the brief for a music producer. You have to be very empathetic and understand people's emotions. Um, most definitely. Um, the music producer job mainly is to, um, like he uh, totally described, is to um, understand what he's up to and translate it into music because the artist cannot express himself when he doesn't feel quote the music and this is a very hard and challenging job and that's why there's so much competition because there are music producers who are very talented at that and there are others who just present an enormous uh, portfolio of beats and one has to be there that the artist will choose whereas I don't work like that when Jason comes to the studio he talk we talk we talk for 10 minutes maybe more and then I picture what we're we going to do and then I start to create uh, you know on spot and it's yeah it, it's handcrafted for Jay actually the music it's not like something I did before I presented to him but I imagine Jay that you're probably very good at uh, showing your emotional mm-hmm. uh, inner self to the yeah. outside world because you said you came from a dancing background yeah so you're very connected to your body yeah. and expressing your emotions. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important, especially if you want to do R&B, is you have to show your feelings. And that's difficult sometimes, but you have to open yourself to the world. So, yeah. Is there any bit of you you close off that you keep protected, private, Jay? Actually, I don't think so, because I think if I want to have the full potential out, I have to share everything. So, yeah. That's also, I have a great story to tell about uh, a song we made. It's called Mami. It's a bit of uh, Spanish. And, yeah, it's a video <laughs> clip. And like uh, the story of the song is uh, really funny because that's the day I went to the studio and I told Andre, like, I don't know what I want to do. So that it's also a feeling, you know, you don't know what you have to, what you want to do. So he just said okay let's talk a little bit and then i i told him yeah we don't have a party song so let's do a party song but i was not feeling like doing a party song so he did the beat and i was like i don't think i like that beat i wanted to throw it away so he told me no stop thinking just go to the mic and just let out what you're thinking and there came a few words and after it was mommy and i was like okay i didn't knew like it would come out this song that's really interesting yes. that you describe yeah. it that way because now i can feel what you were showing in the video which is mm-hmm. this, this party scene yeah but yeah. you didn't feel like you really no no wanted no. to be there yeah even though i saw what was in the video yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like the brazilian part because the yeah. video is was shoot also in brazil oh, so i wondered where yeah. where did you find all these women with what they were wearing <laughs> where is this in luxembourg i was thinking to myself <laughs> yeah so tell us about the importance of the video the importance of the video like i want to show my roots so i'm half brazilian my father is from brazil uh like my parts of the family in brazil is uh, like in music for a long time uh, my grandmother uh, was in uh, like church singing and my uncle actually is a very popular singer in uh, brazil so i was always in the kind of music thing and I just love Brazil, like colors and all the people, the culture, it's, it's a music culture. So I was like, okay, mommy, I mixed some Brazilian uh, words to it, some Spanish words, like the whole Latin thing. And I was like, yeah, why should I make the video here if I have the opportunity to do it in Brazil? Because I have the connections. So my uncle helped me with this and I made uh, the video there. So it's important to me to show that part of me, that's part of Jay. That's very lovely. It also builds a bigger audience. Yeah. It's no bad right. thing. Um, and then I want to talk about really, you know, do you feel ever that you have to fit into a mold? You know, when I think about the music that you're mm-hmm. producing, uh, I know you go across genre, Andre, but... Um, do you feel like you ever have to compete with your stars? I've mentioned a couple of them, but the people that you really hold in high regard, mm-hmm. do you feel like you have to produce music that sounds like that or videos that look like that? Do you feel that you have to have a persona that, you know, you show that, oh, I'm like them? Or mm-hmm. or or can you be real to you? 
Yeah, it's uh, difficult because today people, they compare everything. So they tell you like, um, I show a song to a friend and they say, oh yeah, you did a little bit like Chris Brown or like, I'm like, no, that's, I did it so, because it's me and I want to do this song. So I would say it's difficult because yeah, uh, there's a large audience, uh, a lot of artists that put music out there. But like my main goal is just to do music. Uh, like I said, uh, an example one day is if I know that somebody like is suffering or is not good, he has a, a heartbreak, a separation from somebody and he listens to my mu music and he can feel like, okay, he went through the same and he can feel good by hearing my song, even if I don't know that moment, but that's my main goal. Yeah, Then I, exactly I know, I know I, I made something for one person, even if it's for one person, it's worth it for me. Mm -hmm. And then to both of you, really, how can you afford to make music your life? I mean, I know that you, you are now very successful, André, but for people who want to get into the music industry in Luxembourg or basically anywhere, um, you have to put a lot in before you become successful. You just spoke about 80, 90 percent of your work is not really known, including your own songs, which you haven't put out. But, you know, when it comes to getting the financial backing, how do you do that in Luxembourg? Yeah, it's really difficult. Uh, you have like um, some... Uh associations like yeah rock lab is a good thing they they help young artists to come to like uh, vocal coaching courses and something like that uh, you have also the ministry of culture who is also helping with this but actually you just have to work because it's such a big thing and it costs a lot of money to do it uh, video shoot and all the you always have to be on point also with fashion so these are all things that I can tell <laughs> yeah <laughs> all the things that people don't think about but yeah there are a lot of expensive things and yeah just work and that's also part that's difficult because you have to work and do the creative thing like when you have time and other artists like Spahn, Usher, all the, the great artists uh, they just have like 24 hours to think about music but you are like in your job you're doing serious they thing. didn't start like that yeah yeah that's that's right and after your normal job you have to go to the studio and like switch your mindset and be creative and switch your outfit maybe that yeah, helps. i yeah. can't imagine i don't even know what your normal job is i only know you through music <laughs> so i i'm trying to vision you in a suit <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. Oh, really? That's right, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's quite interesting. What do you do then? It's ministry. Oh, that's yeah. very interesting. <laughs> no, no, nothing more to say to this. <laughs> ministry of what? I will, will not tell this. Okay. I, I want think... to keep that, that okay. part private. Well, but I don't yeah. know that you can, looking like you. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, André, for yeah. any upcoming artist, apart from Jay, that would like to work with you, what would you like to say to them? Um, I used to tell a, f a funny thing to people is making music together is like being in a relation, a real relationship, a loving relationship with that person. So you kind of open yourself to the fullest with with each other, let's say. So I, I'm, I'm very lucky that Jason and me go along very well. We are friends, first of all. And I cannot envision myself um, working with an upcoming mu uh, musician or artist if we are not um, really friends, actually. So, of course, I would work with any upcoming artist that I feel like they have, you know, potential, but mostly are serious about what they want, about their intentions. Um, I want only to work with people with a solid mindset. At They have to be at least as passionate as I am, at least, if not more. Because now I'm at a point where I need to be, you know, where I have to feel that uh, that sparkle in, 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 up, in the upcoming guys. I have to see myself in them when I was younger. And I feel that with Jay, so... Um, it's an investment, uh, like you said, it's a, fina a big financial investment. But I used to work also in cafes on the weekends. I used to work at Quick in the fast food chains. 
I, so like, not about the ministry then? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I did work in banking too. <laughs> so I did work in banking too um, and uh, actually quit the job in the bank, you know, to pursue a university that allowed me to, to have time for music. So what I want to say about this is if you truly want something, then you find ways to do it. So I, I quit my job to go to university. I got some help from the state, of course, uh, financial help from the state, but it allowed me to find time to pursue music and if someone truly is passionate about something th- it's like it, the creativity will come to to open up the ways that's so to funny pursue. that you went to university so yeah. that you could continue the, yeah. the music yeah that's, I really <laughs> did that only to pursue music ended up of course having my degree my bachelor degree in economics and funny is now that I really can take advantage of what I learned in the in university to, to run my company, yeah. yeah. Because now, uh, yeah, you have also at some point you have to shift from an artist to become a business person, and that's a whole other story. <laughs> well, we'll have you back. Yeah, we'll have you back, Andre. <laughs> we'll have you back when you next release a record. Is the one coming yeah. out for a uh, Christmas? Yeah. Uh, no, not for Christmas. Actually, end of the month, there's a new oh. single coming out that we did, and uh, on the 25th of November there will be a big show in uh, Shushu. You don't know if you yeah. know the place, yeah. so you're also invited to come there oh. if you want to <laughs> see me live. Yes. Because live performance <laughs> is, I think it's really important. To, then you really see like the artist live and live performing and yeah, I will do also dancing and all the stuff. So and it's so interesting. Yeah. All those bikini clad ladies in your videos, no, will they no, be no. there? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit too far for them. <laughs> I think there's someone like somewhere who would uh, jump on the stage with you. <laughs> anyway, thank you both so much. Thank, thank you, guys. you too. <laughs> it was a pleasure, really. The Lisa Burke Show. And my final guest today is Moni Kirsch, who is here to talk about the Science Festival in Luxembourg. Now, you are the Chargé d'études dirigeante uh, of the Nat- music, uh, Natural Museum here in Luxembourg. And you have organised the Science Festival for over 20 years. You've worked in the educational sector, curator of the exhibition Impact Biodiversity, and now in communication and PR. So tell us about this wonderful festival that I adore. Yeah, okay, so it's starting next week and it's uh, for four days. And normally we have two days just for school classes or pupils and groups. And then the two next days, that's the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, it's for the all public, quand public, we can call it. And everybody's welcome. Yeah. And just for the school classes, it's just personally for them. It's not open to the public. So that's uh, booking in advance and that has already all been uh, through. So uh, it's starting and we're all getting ready to uh, get this whole stuff moving because it's a real big event. It's uh, not just by us in the Natural History Museum, but also in the Abbey Neumünster. Yeah. And a big tent that's being built up now this moment to have it outside. Just in case the weather is Just, bad. Yeah, because it's impossible to have it outside. It's because it's November and you never know how the weather is going to be. So Yeah, I've attended uh, there when the weather has been inclement. And so, um, yeah, yeah. But it's really great. You have so many different stands and you can always make fun things. I have a lovely bag that I made pressing leaves onto it with my kids when they were younger. So the super, super experimental stands, but really yeah. fun, creative ones. I think that was the, the Natumi. Is this fastest? Um, oh, yes, um, maybe it Lisa, was. if I may, may correct Whoops. you. Yeah, sorry, no. But it's uh, normally we have it's to promote science yeah. and it's to show also that the museum, um, uh, we have science, um, scientific research institute also, and yeah. we, we um, promote the science. And it's to show too that we uh, have a research and our researchers are there to show what they are studying on or what research they're doing. And uh, it's more like a science communicator. Yeah. To communicate with the public and to show, normally that's very difficult too, is to get your research uh, explained in a certain level so the all-around public uh, understands it too. So uh, that's a challenge for the researchers too. And it's, uh, let's say it was 1995 when Luxembourg was culture year. We had the first uh, science festival. That's where I jumped in and started. And uh, it has evolved and gotten bigger. 
So we had like just like uh, 15, 20 stands, and now it's so big because the Fonds National de la Recherche, uh, we are funded by the FNR, and they uh, dropped in in 2003 and uh, said they would help uh, fund this whole event. So it got bigger and bigger, and we're now over 50 uh, workshops and shows to promote science and to show what's all behind um, yeah, and so, another part of this yeah. is, is, as you said, to showcase the research that's being done in Luxembourg, exactly. which is growing year on year ever since the university has started. We've got some really good interdisciplinary centres. So just give us a flavour of who will be talking there, because I know there's some particular talks that you can sign up to as well. Uh, we normally have workshops where you can workshops, drop in. Yeah. Sorry, it's workshops and you can drop in, meaning it's you don't have to reserve or don't have to book. It's just that you can come in if you see it's too many people there. Just go by and go to the next stand and then come back. It's normally uh, very easy to drop in like that. We just have our, our shows and those shows are seated. Uh, they're, they're places that you have to kind of booked. And just to say the event is free, so it doesn't cost anything. It's you can just come in like that, even the, this, uh, the shows. And that moment, it's better to book over Neumünster, Abbey Neumünster. Yeah. And uh, what's important too, what's all new this year, is it's a green event. And uh, that's a big, uh, a big burden to get everything. I mean, we normally as a natural history museum are already on this uh, more green, um, ecological, regional, local and take the bus, please, or drive your bike or not with the car. I mean, that's the stuff you should do anyway. Uh, but we already have our cafeteria and everything where we're with the food and regional. And now it's a big event that we don't have any, like, uh, you don't give any hands out, no papers, no, we try and reduce it or try and reuse it. So that was kind of a challenge. It was not me. I mean, I'm not organizing at this event this time, but the two people in charge really had a challenge to get this all in place. I already had it for the Naturmusis Fest, so there are like 80 points on a checklist where you have to go through with the Uko Center and uh, then get that through that you say we do all kinds, of, we, even with the food trucks, because we have food trucks, and they all have to have their um, products what you give not just in a one way but reusable um, let's say uh, cups or systems and we also have a water fountain where you can refill your your water or if the people can come with the bike but it's always weather dependent or with the train or the tram or the bus so well it's helped by the fact that a number yeah. of car parks are closed in yes. Luxembourg City yes. so that's always a big problem too <laughs> no I mean that's so helping tram or by foot exactly. I mean honestly but I understand people who are maybe uh, have a disability or with the with the buggy I mean it's uh, clear that you can come maybe closer and then yeah yeah. Come by foot, yeah. And so anything exciting that you could highlight? Yeah, that's the problem, as I normally don't do that. Because, of course, uh, everybody wants yes, to be We have over 50 <laughs> workshops and we really have a bunch of institutions, like you said, uh, the University of Luxembourg or school classes. And what's real fun too is we have schools and lycées yeah. where the students and the pupils, they hold the workshop themselves. So they kind of learn uh, how to do this too or to, to be a science communicator. And it's a skill too that you kind of have to learn. Or um, even your research, we have research uh, scientists that are very passionate. Like you say, you have to have fun, André, but it's your passion too. You try and pass on and we hope to... Um yeah. touch uh, everybody and get maybe interested in science and not to be fearful or scared or say it's Chinese I don't understand anything <laughs> <laughs> and what's very important is it's free it's a green event this year and it's hands-on science meaning please touch please participate it's not to be standing in the corner and not uh, daring well so that's uh, very Monique important. we will link to all of the uh, festival.lu and uh, other links as well the the program for the event all of the the shows the workshops that you yeah. can reserve for free yeah. and I, I hope everybody will attend and I hope the weather will be good Yes, and we'll all come along on our bicycles or <laughs> free public transport we'll wow. all be very very green with our water bottles to refill Monique thank you so much Christina thank you so much thank you for everything you do and I encourage everybody to check out Majestic Andre Seven's uh, music his beats there and of course the wonderful Jay and his new music and of course uh, we will link to the new song and we will feature it on Today Radio when it drops at the end of this month thank you all so thanks much thanks so much thanks thanks, thanks.